0: Just start praying for me right now. Brian Mass, pray for me. Amen. All right. Hopefully uh, this works. All right, well, um, as you can see, today I'm preaching on Genesis 39, verses 6b through 12. But before I jump into it, I want to uh, say something redemptive historical. Last week, Tim mentioned this term in his sermon. Basically, what I mean by it is that God has had a unified plan of redemption uh, from the beginning. Uh, Through the Old Testament to the New, including us, he has this overarching plan of redemption. Uh, and in a sense, everything in the Old Testament looks forward and culminates in Christ. And everything in the New Testament looks back at Christ. So, uh, there's a couple of verses I'm going to read about that. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So, Christ is saying, the Old Testament is about, bears witness about me. And then... For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. You might hear that and think, how could Moses write about Jesus? Jesus wasn't born yet, or he didn't know about Jesus. But um, what Jesus is getting at is that everything in the Old Testament, it wasn't like God was making it up as he went, and like, oh, maybe I'll do this next. He had this redemptive plan that stretches from the beginning when Adam... And Eve are cursed. And God says, uh, through the offspring of the woman, I will crush the head of the serpent. From that moment on, everything is pointing to Christ. And Moses wrote about Christ. And then this last verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So uh, my point is, Everything in Scripture is about Christ. Everything points towards Him. Everything looks back towards Him. So that's going to be my pattern for this sermon. Is We're going to be looking in Genesis uh, 39, but we're going to be looking at how this uh, particular section of Scripture uh, is alluded to in the Old Testament and then the New Testament and how it applies to us um, through the scope of redemptive history. So let's read our verse, though. Genesis 39, 6b through 12. Uh, This is, I'm reading in the ESV. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or even to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got out of the house. So I here have highlighted our main themes that we're going to be tracing throughout the Old Testament and then the New. Our first theme is authority. I've highlighted it in blue. It's the fact that Joseph has been given all things into his hand. It says charge, but the Hebrew uh, literal meaning of the Hebrew word is hand but it communicates uh, charge or authority. So, um, everything is in his hand. Uh, temptation, highlighted in the red, are all the instances where Potiphar's wife uh, tempts Joseph and tries to seduce him. And then in green, we have all the instances where Joseph refuses, says no day after day, uh, and flees the house. I'm going to tra- trace these three, th- th- three themes throughout all Scripture, how um, the... Old and then New Testament built upon them. We'll start with the immediate context of our passage. So here I have a bunch of um, little boxes. From This represents Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. It's the whole end of the book of Genesis. Everything in green uh, indicates that it's, Joseph, it's really about Joseph's story. So everything is about Joseph or he's a, a main uh, part of the story. But there's this one section um, in, in pink, it says Judah and Tamar. It's this really random chapter in the Bible where all of a sudden, Joseph isn't in the story at all. And you're like, what's going on? Why is this even included in the Bible? What's the purpose of this? Well, this is actually the chapter that Eric De Shields preached on two years ago for Youth Sunday. Um, and uh, it talks about Judah and Tamar and Tamar. It's actually, it shines light on our passage that we're talking about today. And uh, I'm going to show you that in a couple passages. Our first, um, in the green, our first green box is the passage, uh, verse we just read. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. Well, later in the story, in uh, chapter 39, Potiphar's wife, it says, Then she laid up his garment by her until his, Joseph's master, came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. So she takes his garment, all right, and, she, and it identifies Joseph, and she uses it to condemn Joseph. Well, this uh, very same thing happened in the chapter before, Genesis 38. All right? uh, this is about Judah in pink, the lower uh, left box. He, Judah said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So um, these identifying objects are given to Tamar, and it's an instance of temptation that Judah fails here. He sins against God. He fails the the test. And then in the, uh, the, the last box, Tamar later uses these identifying objects to condemn Judah. And she says or she says to Judah, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. So this same parallel of Judah being condemned by his identifying objects and then Joseph by his identifying object later. But they're opposites, right? Judah sins greatly against the Lord, and uh, he gets condemned, but really no real action taken against him. Uh, he just repents. But Joseph, um, he, he's obedient in the midst of temptation, but he actually gets condemned and sent into prison anyway. So we have this theme uh, right in the midst of our context, but we also have the theme of authority in our context as well. This verse, uh, He is not greater in this house than I am, that we just read, is alluded to two chapters later in Genesis forty-one forty. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. That is Pharaoh speaking to Joseph. All right? So the story of Joseph, Joseph starts off as a slave, but he grows into authority in Potiphar's house. He goes into slavery, but then even, I mean, he goes into prison, but then even greater authority is given to him over all of Egypt. All right? So there's this widening of authority in Joseph's life uh, through uh, trials. And it's going to keep that, that theme will continue to grow throughout all of Scripture. All right. This next, um, this next allusion is interesting. It connects our passage to the, the life of David and to the life of Jesus. It's kind of an odd allusion, but it, I think it's important to help us connect the dots. So in Genesis 29, there's this passage about Leah and Rachel. It says, Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. And this this is quoted ten chapters later about Joseph. Now, in the passage we just read, it said handsome in form and appearance. I've changed the wording to be more connected to the Hebrew wording. It's the same word for Rachel as Joseph. So I've kept it beautiful in both cases. All right, I know in English sometimes we say men are handsome or women are beautiful. My wife calls me beautiful, though. Uh, So it can go both ways. Right? Am I I beautiful? Thank you. All right. So, Joseph is said to be beautiful in form, and then the words are repeated. Beautiful in appearance. Well, this is alluded to in uh, 1 Samuel, talking about David. It says, He was but a youth, ruddy, and beautiful in appearance. Now, um... And there's other instances where this is talked about, and there's allusions to the Old Testament. I only have so much time, so I'm focused on just this one part. But then in Isaiah, this is picked up and talked about the suffering servant. There's these chapters that talk about this suffering servant. We know, looking back, that the suffering servant is Jesus. All right? So uh, this is about Jesus. It says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So that the, the order is reversed, but in then this last one, Isaiah chapter 53, it's the, the, same form, the same order we see. He, Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no appearance that we should desire him. I, I don't think this means Jesus was ugly. I think the main purpose of this passage is to connect Jesus to Joseph. And show that there's, there's a connection between them. There's a foreshadowing that happens in the life of Joseph and then David uh, that, uh, when we get to Jesus. Oh, and um, yeah. So um, keep that in mind as we go forward. We're going to first talk about David, though. So they're both beautiful in appearance, as we just saw, but there's also more in common that they have. They're both the youngest of many brothers. Of course, we know that Joseph has a younger brother, Benjamin, later, but that's kind of not relevant in the midst of our story. But what's important is that they're both like the youngest of brothers, and they're both hated by their brothers. Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they throw him in a ditch, and then they sell him into slavery. They almost kill him. But um, um, David, um, it says, you know, Uh, Samuel comes to uh, anoint the next king. They go through all the brothers, and they don't bring up David. And finally, Samuel says, "Come on, please. You got to have another. There's got to be someone else." All right. Well, I guess there's David, but and then that's who Samuel anoints. And even says later, his brother burned with anger against him. So it seems like there's they look down on their youngest brothers, but despite that, their brothers end up ruling over them. Joseph over all of Egypt. And then Daniel rules over all of Israel. And they both endure extreme tests or temptations or trials to get there. Uh, Joseph goes through slavery. He goes through prison until he finally becomes uh, over all of Egypt. And David, he's constantly on the run from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. He's hiding in caves. And um, he has opportunities to kill Saul and remove this uh, test but he refuses to give in, he remains obedient, and um, suffers until eventually he is made ruler. However, we also have this instance where David fails the test. All right? uh, so, in our passage, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, David, we know, sins against God with Bathsheba, and here there's, I think, an allusion. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And then in psalms, a psalm about this event, against you, you alone have I sinned. So um, what they both understand, is awesome that Joseph acknowledges this. Joseph, Joseph doesn't even have scripture yet, but he recognizes that it's not Potiphar he's sinning against, or David recognizes it's not Uriah that he's going to sin against, but it's God who they would sin against if they failed the test. Of course, Joseph we see passed the test, he was tempted, but he was obedient. David, of course, fails the test. Now, uh, Joseph and Daniel, um, there—I couldn't. Well, there might be one. There might be one quote, but there aren't too many quotes between the two. But their entire contexts are extremely similar, and it's worth noting. They were both forced into slavery at the beginning of their stories. Joseph uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. Daniel goes into slavery uh, in Babylon. But even though they're in slavery, they end up rising to positions of authority. Joseph in Potiphar's house and Daniel over a providence in Babylon. One of like over a hundred providences under Nebuchadnezzar. So they rise to authority. They both have these dreams, these prophetic dreams, and they interpret dreams. And it's, in fact, they're dream, interpreting dreams that get them to rise in uh, positions of authority. For Joseph, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, having been in prison, right? They both have prison in common. Having been in prison after his first time of authority, he interprets dreams and, and gets even higher in authority over all of Egypt. And Daniel, um, he gets sent to the lion's den, right? And, um, but uh, he had to, I guess he interpreted dreams before that. But he gets sent to the lion's then, and being obedient, uh, he's given even more authority. There's this passage that says um, King Darius uh, was going to make him over all of Babylon. More than just one providence, all of Babylon. Um, so, there's also this interesting thing with Daniel that I'll mention real quick. Just, if you just think about what happens to Daniel, Daniel is tested. He, he refuses um, to fail the test. He's obedient. He won't worship any god but Yahweh. So they put him down in his grave, and they roll a stone over it. And then in the morning, they roll a stone back, and he comes up out alive. I think that is a clear foreshadowing of what happens with Christ, um, who they roll a stone over his grave, but he comes back out alive. Uh, and the reason, like I said earlier on, it's not like God's just making this up as he goes. There's this unified plan of history that God is working towards. All right. Authority um, with J- Joseph and Jesus. There's this uh, quote, and I highlighted this at the beginning of my sermon. Genesis 39.9 says, "He has uh, Potiphar has put everything that he has in my hand. It's important to uh, recognize what that word literally means because... It's quoted in John. So the first time it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Then later, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. It says more, but I'll stop there. Um, So there's this connection. Joseph has a little bit of authority in Potiphar's house. He gets more over Egypt, um, but Jesus... Had everything, all things have been given into His hand. There's this even greater widening of authority in Scripture that it has reached its um, culmination in Jesus. Its um, um, biggest fulfillment in Christ is having um, everything given into His hands. Uh, Jesus also, we see in Scripture, is tested and tempted many times. Uh, he starts off His uh, earthly ministry being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan himself. Jesus is so important. Satan comes in person to tempt him, and um, Jesus is obedient throughout the 40 days. Uh, He refuses the temptation. He's also tempted by the Pharisees throughout his ministry. They're always asking, asking him all these hard questions and trick questions. He refuses to fall in their traps. He throws questions back at them, or he answers really honestly, and they get super angry. And he's even obedient uh, in death. He, um, I'm sure, was tempted at any moment. He could have gotten out of the predicament he was in. He could have not died on the cross if he chose that, but he was obedient to it, even though he had power to avoid it. All right, and Hebrews uh, 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus is the fulfillment of authority, and he's the fulfillment of obedience and temptation. Um, He perfects it. But we, all of us, are a part of this. Um, From the very beginning we were a part of it. In Genesis chapter 128, it says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and uh, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God calls them to have authority over creation. They mess it up with the fall and sin, but here we see in the New Testament, we are still called to have authority, and, but it's a, it looks a little different. Ephesians 1, and he, the Father, put all things under Christ's his feet, and he gave him Christ. As head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what that what that is saying is Christ fills all things. Christ fills all in all. He has everything over his, under his feet. But we are the fullness of him. We we because we are part of his body are also over everything. All right. Um, so, so, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that more. But all right, and the theme of temptation uh, applies to us as well, also in an interesting way. James one two says, "Count it all joy, my brothers or sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy. You know, it's why would I have joy about that? But now I rejoice in my sufferings for my for your sake." And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. So part of the reason we rejoice when we are tested and when we suffer is because we have a purpose in it. We are filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. That's a really weird way to think about it. Christ suffered more than anyone ever suffered or ever will suffer. But we get to, fill, we get to be a part of that when we suffer and are tested. And then even more joy, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, all right, that's an important phrase, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, in the glory, in the honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our suffering, our tests, our temptation, all right, One thing it does is it it shows um, the tested genuineness of our faith. So we are tested to prove that our faith is genuine. And when we do, when we are tested and we obey, it results in praise and glory and honor. So all our trials, all our our sufferings, they, they have this awesome goal to glorify and honor the Father and the Son. All right, and um, there's this this verse at the end of Genesis that Joseph speaks uh, that kind of has a nice way of tying this all together. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this obviously applies to Joseph in his immediate context. Because of all the sufferings he went through, prison, slavery, testing, he was put in a position of Egypt, over all of Egypt. He was able to save people's physical lives, uh, protecting them against the famine by storing up food. But, um, this is, I think, alludes to Jesus. We've seen that Joseph, his life foreshadows that of Christ. Jesus, right, you, you would say that all, all the Pharisees testing him, everyone who put him on the cross and tortured him, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, uh, so that many people should be kept alive, but not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, that he would save our souls. And this applies to us as well. We face all kinds of trials, and the people or circumstances, it might be meant for evil, Um, Satan's schemes or uh, what people do against us might be meant for evil, but God will mean it for good. Um, And we can use these things to bless others in suffering, to bear each other's burdens, um, and to um, minister and uh, bless each other. Maybe even save people's lives, um, depending on the circumstances. But um, I want to try to get really practical now with um, all these things... What we uh, can do, what we can take home. My first application is: don't give up, but also don't give in. So this is what I mean by that. Um, so we have this phrase in um, our, our section: "She Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day by day." What that indicates to us is that Joseph continued to go back to work in the midst of temptation every single day. He 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 would go in. He would get tested, but he kept going back. He didn't run from it, all right? But also, he refuses to um, keep any. You know, he says, "Potiphar has given everything to me except for you." So we have to live this really challenging um, road, where in our jobs, in our work at school, in our raising of our families, in our relationships with uh, with our families, whatever situation you're in. We have these instances of temptation where it'd be a whole lot easier if we just removed ourselves from the situation. Um, but uh, we we have to continue in our in our trials. Uh, ultimately, right? It brings about the glory and honor to God um, while remaining um, uh, while not giving in to them. Our second uh, application: um, what you are doing, your task is important. So. In one of the passages we we talked about, it, it basically had this idea that Christ is taking over everything with you under Him, right? So everything is put into His hands, and we are the, His body, um, the fullness of Him. So um, Christ is taking over everything, and we are part of that. What that means for us is whatever we're doing, we can't we can't say, oh, this is this is less important or this. Is, doesn't matter as much as someone else's tasks that they have. Because everything is important, because Christ is over everything. So, um, whether you're a lawyer, or a teacher, or a plumber, or um, you're in fourth grade, you know, doing your homework assignment, you might feel like, well, this isn't that important. Well, Christ is over everything. He's infinitely big, but he's also infinitely small. And, even even your homework assignment for math class in fourth grade matters because Christ is over everything. My third application is um, your responsibility, your task will continue to grow. Just as we saw Joseph, he started just over Potiphar's house, but through prison and um, being able to interpret dreams, his responsibility widens. He's over all of Egypt. But then even greater, David is over all of Israel. Daniel is over even larger territory, all of Babylon. And then Jesus is over even more. And we, with him, over everything. So so there's this widening of responsibility that we see in authority in uh, Scripture. And we we see that happen in our lives as well. As as God gives us small things to be over, um, and as we are faithful with them, Uh, our responsibility grows. Our our fourth, we have one more after this, fourth application is um, get joyful. We saw this, count it all joy. Your suffering might be painful, but God means it for good. So get joyful, and uh, lastly, keep saying no. Um, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can we do that? And um, This is all to... The, um, to prove the tested genuineness of our faith, uh, which results in the honor and glory of God. So keep saying no because uh, it proves that um, it proves that your It doesn't save you, but it proves that your faith is genuine, and uh, it brings glory to God. So th- uh, at this point, I'm going to uh, call the worship team back up, and um, I'm going to call the prayer team up. If you, um, so come on up, worship team. If you need prayer... Uh, The prayer team should hopefully be up here or in the back.